0: Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We're covering the blog posts from June 2020 this time. My name is Colin Yeo. I'm joined as ever by CJ McKinney. We're going to start off with some general discussion this month about the immigration system and also my new book, Welcome to Britain. If I have mentioned that I've written a book? I'm going to move on to cover a couple of deportation cases and then look at some material on appeals, on asylum, family immigration, EU law. And we're going to end with a reminder on refunds for the immigration health surcharge for NHS and social care workers. Right, if you want to claim CPD points for listening, then um, you can head over to freemovements.org.uk slash training and sign up to a member there, where we have a monthly update course with a short quiz that you can take to claim your CPD points. CJ, over to you to get started.
1: Yes, we thought we'd start with a nod to the Black Lives Matter movement and what we can say about race relations from an immigration law perspective uk immigration law is colourblind on paper but our modern system of immigration control was designed with racial considerations very much in mind when legislation to limit immigration from british colonies to the uk was first introduced in the 60s it, it didn't say no blacks no asians but i think colin you've written that th- those laws tried to achieve that aim of sort of racial discrimination without saying so explicitly
0: yeah, there was. Uh, there's no explicit um, colour bar, which I suppose is in some ways to the, the credit of the politicians concerned. But if you look at the actual archives or government archives, they were quite clear uh, behind the scenes that it was about coloured immigration. Um, politicians and the elite at that time were quite relaxed and, and, and welcoming, in fact, about um, white re-migration from places like Canada and Australia, um, but were really quite resistant to... Uh, what they call coloured immigration um, from you know, India, Pakistan, and and, and the Caribbean. Um, so there's undoubtedly, I think, a, a really strong racial dimension to the the introduction of immigration legislation during that period. And as I try to sort of argue and show in that that blog post, um, there's a lot of continuity between the immigration laws then and now, and the evolution of the the idea of the right of abode in the the 1971 Act, and then it's kind of uh, incorporation is, is a sort of basis of nationality effectively in the British Nationality Act 1981 and um you know even today i think um, it's you have to the 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 racism that we see day to day as immigration practitioners um isn't explicit on the face of the rules um but undoubtedly as as lawyers we do see racism that our clients are experiencing um, day-to-day in the way that the rules on entry operate um, and also um, perhaps more obviously um, in things like the hostile environment and the, the clear race discrimination that that not only risks but actually encourages I think in in, in my view.
1: And, and what did you say about the immigration system and its attitude if you like to racism in the book because I remember when you were writing us and you showed me a draft and we are I think we discussed whether you you wanted to use the word racist in the introduction or in the first chapter to describe the immigration system. And I, I don't know whether you came down on the decision on that in the end.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one because undoubtedly there is racism. Um, but I, I feel the book was written with a view to trying to persuade people and, you know, coming out and calling things racist right at the outset isn't necessarily a way of bringing people round who haven't already made their mind up. And I might have written the book differently, I think, if the Black Matters, uh, Black Lives Matter movement had already sort of um, started by then. But no, I do call it out explicitly as racism in the book, in fact. Um, I think I would have Um, emphasized that more strongly and made more of it Um, if I'd been writing it even you know it's not exactly long since I wrote it and published it this week Uh, it's amazing how how things move quickly but no I do I do call it out as being racism and I talk in particular about the way that citizens citizenship policy in the UK um, has been about and I, I kind of call it um, preserving the existing ethnic um, um, composition of the population, I think is the, the phrasing that I've used, and then go on to say you we know, need that, that. Another way of describing that is, is just racism, basically. And um, things like the abolition of birthright citizenship, the various different barriers that have been erected over the years um, to claiming citizenship, both in the 81 Act itself and then in the way that fees have been raised, new tests have been introduced and reinterpreted and so on. Um, that That's all about... I, I think that is motivated by racism, yeah
1: but yeah, and some of those measures in quite recent years as well, which is which is depressing, but we will not spend the whole podcast plugging the book because you've recorded a much longer conversation about it with sat uh which uh satbeer sing from j c w i which went out as a podcast last week, so people can tune in there. Speaking of how migrants in the UK are treated, there is a report out from the National Audit Office which looks at the hostile environment. And among the findings there is one that you have talked about a fair bit, Colin, which is that the Home Office views the hostile environment policies as a sort of moral crusade against unauthorised migrants, rather than trying to measure whether that actually works in terms of persuading people to leave the UK. There's no research you no know, estimates, and and as the National Audit Office points out, voluntary departures from the UK of unauthorized migrants have fallen massively since the hostile environment came in, which, as I think you've been saying for a while, is a pretty good indication that it ain't working.
0: Yeah, it's um. I I think you wrote the uh, you wrote this one up, and and you did the headline. And I I agree wholeheartedly with what you've written here home office doesn't know doesn't care whether the hostile environment even works i this this is a bit complicated because the home office has never been clear about what the actual purpose of the hostile environment is so even judging whether it works or not isn't that straightforward because we don't know what it's supposed to do really um but certainly this new nao report um shows that the home office just isn't doing any research into whether it puts people off arriving or encourages people to leave and the data that we do have suggests that, you know, voluntary departures are actually going down, as you say, and that the, what, what I call in the book, the unauthorized population, sometimes we call them the undocumented. I, I, for reasons I explain, I, I plump for the word unauthorized population. Um, the size of that population is actually growing. Um, and it's, it could be as high as 1.2 million. Now there are, you know, there have been different estimates done. It's impossible to guess, um, accurately than the number of people because by their nature, they don't come forward to be counted shall we say um but you know if it is that many people obviously no nobody's going to remove 1.2 million people from from the uk even if they thought that was a good idea to do it which obviously isn't um and simply trying to sort of force them out but not doing that seems like really terrible public policy so one of the things i argue strongly for in the book is um two things one is a proper amnesty that would actually bring a lot of those people into lawful status um as quickly as possible but also having some long term proper routes to regularization which are an improvement on the existing awful 20 year stroke 30 year route to settlement um which is just you know obviously not up to the job um and is also extremely expensive you know locking people out of of Lawful status by really rigid rules, which are made worse by really high fees again, it's just terrible, terrible public policy.
1: Let's get on to our legal updates for the month. Deportation first there's a couple of cases there, the first of which is from the upper tribunal called s c paris a three nine eight 399d foreign criminal procedure albania 2020 uk ut 187 iac and the case is about the definition of foreign criminal for the purposes of part 5a of the nationality immigration asylum act 2002. basically the usual rules on deportation that we talk about a lot in the podcast uh, apply to someone who has a criminal conviction in the uk But the person in this case had a murder conviction from the Albanian courts, so he wasn't a foreign criminal for the purposes of Part 5a. And the tribunal found that the similar provisions in the immigration rules didn't apply to him either, because the meaning of the term foreign criminal in the rules should be the same as in the legislation, and that overturns a previous case called Andel. And so the question in the case was, what was the legal test that this Albanian man had to satisfy to appeal against deportation, if not the usual Part 5a rules? And the tribunal found that the formulation is whether there would be unjustifiably harsh consequences for him or his family, which I think, Colin, is a test that they took from the entry clearance rules.
0: Yeah, this is a really good example of how convoluted and unfit for purpose the deportation Rules and law has become because, sort of, you know, on a common sense basis, somebody with a conviction of this level of seriousness—if that conviction is sound, which was was contested in this um, case—but if that conviction is sound, that that person, you know, is 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 going to be excluded essentially under any kind of character-based uh, assessment of the rules. So having to kind of count the number of angels on the the pin of the precise wording of the deportation rules and whether it applies to uh, a, a, a conviction abroad and so on just goes to show how, in my view anyway, how rigid the rules have become and how desirable it would be to um, have a more discretionary approach, which wouldn't be about la- allowing people in who've got serious convictions, but it would just be, you know, a relatively simple test. It could be, for example, whether it's conducive to the public good, the actual wording of the Immigration Act 1971, for goodness sake. Um, and, and that allows, um, you know, a, a holistic approach, which where all the relevant factors are balanced rather than having to pick your way through these ridiculously absurdly complex rules.
1: Yeah, I think Ian, when he wrote up the case, did a really good job of explaining what was going on. But it was still, I mean, my potted explanation still took <laughs> a couple of minutes. Uh The second deportation case then was in the Court of Appeal. And this time we are back in our normal, uh if complicated, set of rules. And in particular, the definition of serious harm. So the, the Part 5a rules say that someone who receives a prison sentence of less than 12 months is not subject to automatic deportation unless the offence has caused serious harm. And in this appeal, there were three people with low level sentences less than 12 months, and two of those were deemed by the Court of Appeal to have caused serious harm uh One conviction, uh, a man sent a picture of his penis to a 15 year old girl and, and got her to send him a picture in return. He wasn't sent to prison for it, but that was serious harm, so he does get deported. Same for a road rage assault with a blunt instrument that attracted an eight month sentence. Uh, but there was a third conviction in the appeal for a bogus asylum claim and forging documents, and the court of appeal found that that should not have been deemed serious harm by the tribunal judge. The citation. Mamoud and others, and Upper Tribunal Immigration and Asylum Chamber, twenty twenty EWCA Civ seven one seven. Some useful practical examples there, Colin, or is it just kind of factual stuff?
0: Yeah, it's it's useful, I guess. Um, Although, also slightly regrettable. It's kind of you'd sort of hope for um, a slightly more serious test for serious harm, frankly, um, given that, you know, automatic deportation occurs already at this sort of 12-month um, threshold. So you'd have thought that it would have to be, if you get less than that, really quite serious. Um, and I, whether, yeah, I suppose it's a matter of opinion, really, whether these offences are or aren't. But, you know, if they were um, if they were really serious, then they'd have gotten more than a 12-month sentence in the first place. So it, it, it's there are examples of some, you know, what criminal lawyers would, would think of as being relatively minor offences. Um, of course, you, you can't describe any of these as being not serious without suddenly making yourself sound like an apologist for for people doing bad things. But on the scale of seriousness, these are right down at the bottom, um, and that's that's kind of how I try to put it in in court to judges. So I'm not coming across like a like an apologist. Um, and um, you know, for the word serious to actually have a kind of good dictionary meaning um, that, that hasn't been completely debased, um, then it's questionable whether these these ones really meet it. But I suppose at least we've got some guidance. It's just a shame that um, you know, the threshold seems to be set quite so low in relative terms.
1: Absolutely. Turning to immigration appeals more generally, there is a quite a meaty judgment from the upper tribunal about the duty on the home office to disclose relevant policies known, I think as the Khrushchev duty after an earlier case. This new one is BH policies, information SOS's duties, Iraq 2020 UKUT 189 IAC. And in this case, the tribunal holds or perhaps reiterates it's a better way of putting it that if there is a policy that might undermine the secretary of state's case, Home Office representative must bring it to the judge's attention, even if that policy is publicly available. There are loads of policies, obviously, and judges can't be expected to be across them all. Uh, but there is a caveat. If we're talking about country policy and information notes, CPINs, uh, this disclosure duty does not apply to mere country information that's contained in those documents. I think there are a couple of difficulties with that. First of all, these C-PINs are notoriously a jumble of policy and information and it's not always easy to distinguish between them. And secondly, Colin, I think there was a court of appeal case that uh, suggests that there is no such exemption for country information and the tribunal didn't, uh, it, it, that wasn't cited before the tribunal in this case.
0: Yeah. So um, it was David Neal actually from Garden Court Chambers who, who um, flagged this one up. Um, it's the case of RS Sri Lanka. So we, we amended the blog post um, you know, the, the tribunal wasn't referred to the RS Sri Lanka case. It's a clear example, in fact, of um, those kind of C-PINs um, being under an obligation of disclosure. It's not the c that are under the obligation, it's the Home Office that's under an obligation to disclose them. Um, and um, there is, therefore, a bit of a question mark about whether the tribunal has reached a, a sort of a proper, t- proper binding um the decision in this one so yeah, there's there's some ambiguity but if you just sort of step back in from it for a second you know it's if if there is a relevant seeping, you'd hope that the home office would bring it to the attention of the judge surely on a, again on a common sense basis the home office should bring it to the attention of the judge um and you know if 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 it's relevant and it wasn't brought to the attention of the judge then that really brings into question whether whether the judge's decision is is sound so again this kind of dancing around on on sort of interpretations of of, of precise things and um sort of losing the, the the wood for the trees i think is not particularly helpful in these kinds of determinations
1: that's fair We also wanted to mention a bit of research on first tier tribunal appeals, which demonstrates that they are more likely to succeed. Appeals are more likely to succeed if there's an oral hearing, as opposed to just decided on the papers. And that may not come as a surprise to representatives, to be fair, but uh, Maria Gurman and George Symes from 10 KW Chambers have gone away and got the actual hard data on appeal outcomes uh, through FOI and done some proper statistical analysis to show that there is a meaningful correlation between having an oral hearing and winning your case. Now, there are reasons why that might be the case other than having an oral hearing inherently increasing the chances of success it might be for for example the people who have weak cases don't kind of bother pursuing it to a full hearing because they know it's pretty hopeless now i know maria and george sort of aren't convinced by those arguments they do think there's a causal relationship between having the oral hearing and the increased likelihood of success irrespective of the underlying merits of the case
0: yeah it's difficult isn't it there's not I'm not sure whether there's enough data to really sort of base a solid conclusion. On it. And, you know, as a barrister who who makes a living from oral hearings, I'd like to think that it makes a difference <laughs> and that it does actually help the clients. And you'd kind of expect barristers to be um, advocating in favour of oral hearings. Um, but as you said earlier, that, that there are multiple reasons potentially why um, somebody might opt for a paper hearing when they don't necessarily have a very good case. Or, for example, they don't have a lawyer. There could be reasons why they don't have a lawyer or they're just sort of putting in a holding application. So I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like to think that it does make a difference. I suspect it actually does. Um, but I'm not sure that the sort of bare comparison of the success rates necessarily sort of uh, requires that conclusion to be reached.
1: Yeah, I'm sure most representatives would agree with you about the value of an oral hearing. But anyway, if anyone wants to take a look at the figures and even the kind of mathematics behind what the guys have done, uh, that is on the website under Maria German's byline, dated the 8th of June. And sticking with numbers and data, but this time in the asylum context, it was Refugee Week last month, uh, during the month of June, and I pulled together some facts and figures on asylum. And one stat that jumped out at me that I thought we could share was the percentage of asylum applications that are granted by the Home Office at the first time of asking, the kind of first instance success rate. And it's really jumped. Over the past few years, you had kind of just over a third of applications granted first time, 35, maybe 40% as a push. And that was close to the EU average. And in 2019, it was 52%. So from 35, 40 to 52%, a really big jump uh, in 2019. I don't know if you, you had any thoughts on why that might be.
0: Well, it, it's something that I look at in the book. i Have I mentioned the book before? Um, but um, you know, the, the one one sort of optimistic interpretation is that things are improving at the home office and that they are less sceptical. And, and I look at the, one of the things I track over time is the the huge variation in success rate. So um, apparently, over eighty percent of, um, like, like considerably over eighty percent, actually of um, asylum seekers back in the eighties and early nineties used to get asylum at first asking. The um, percentage plummeted to about three percent when the numbers started to rise in the kind of mid nineteen nineties, and now it's uh, it's creeping up and up and up. So that that could be taken as a very good sign. Um, I suppose the Home Office, if if they were to sort of think about this, could try and argue that it means that their measures to prevent bogus asylum seekers are working and that, you know, it, it's only sort of genuine asylum seekers that are making those claims. Although I can't see how that works, frankly, in in, in practice. Um, so uh, yeah, I, th- I think it, it is worth remembering that, you know, things aren't all necessarily doom and gloom. and And maybe some of the work that people have been doing behind the scenes for years now is actually coming to fruition. And and the Home Office is you know, more open and more receptive um, to asylum claims than they were in previous years.
1: Absolutely. But we are going to descend into doom and gloom when we discuss our next couple of cases, which come from the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, one of them we describe on the site as worrying, and it's to do with returning asylum seekers to Sudan. The basic question was about the risk to a non-Arab in Khartoum and the Strasbourg court concluded that, while conditions are not ideal, uh, such people are not at risk of persecution or serious harm solely on the grounds of their ethnicity. Uh, the case SA and the Netherlands, application number 4973-15, I think though, Con, that's a contrast with the UK position, which is more protective of, of non-Arab Sudanese.
0: Yeah, it, I, I, just looking at the write-up here, it, it seems that the um, ECHR, the, the court, has gone a bit wrong in terms of um, assessing sort of geographical location as opposed to ethnicity, and and it's really the kind of risk on return is about. Probably what you'd look like rather than sort of questions about exactly where you grew up or something like that, but um the the concern and of course you know as immigration lawyers, doom and gloom is never never too far apart, too far away but the the concern is that the home office might try and use this to start um opening up the the country guidance case from two thousand and fifteen and trying to suggest that that's wrong because as we know, the home office is is never keen on country guidance cases that um, went against it, and that allow people to succeed in their claims. But we'll have to just sort of watch this space and see.
1: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have any immediate impact here in the UK. Uh, There's another Strasbourg case, which again doesn't have have direct practical import but is interesting it is about the right to be given a visa specifically to claim asylum in a european country and a syrian family applied to the belgian embassy in beirut where i guess they were refugees and they were asylum seekers and they asked for a visa to go to belgium To claim asylum there. The UK government uh, very much did not want them to succeed in this argument and sent a team of no less than six high powered counsel, including the Attorney General and Sir James Eady, to argue on the Belgian government's side at the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, they won. Uh, Well, the the Belgian government won with the support of of the UK government and and many others. Uh, The court ruled that the case was inadmissible. So uh, that sort of humanitarian visa argument has failed, at least for now. Citation MN and others, and Belgium, application number 3599-18. We wanted to just give a couple of quick mentions in the kind of family immigration space. Uh, Nicola Carter has written uh, quite an interesting article about the 180-day rule on permitted absences, which she reminds people that doesn't apply to people who have a spouse or a partner visa. Uh, Nicola is saying she gets loads of inquiries from people on a space visa, and they're worried that they don't qualify for indefinitely to remain because they've been out of the country for more than 180 days in any 12 uh, month period. But in fact, that uh, there is no hard and fast rule that that affects for people in this visa category. Pro tip. And we also had a briefing we wanted to mention about uh, support under Section Seventeen of the Children Act nineteen eighty nine. So this is where families with no recourse to public funds can apply to their local council uh, if for financial support if they have a child in need, and that comes from the charity Project Seventeen. Uh, we've uh, republished it with their kind permission, uh, and there's more resources around that whole issue on the Project Seventeen website. So to EU law. There is a case about extended family members of EU citizens. Uh, This is about the residence rights of more distant relatives like uncles and nieces and nephews who can sometimes be sponsored by an EU citizen effectively so long as they are dependent on the sponsor. And the case of Chowdhury, Extended Family Members Dependency 2020 UKUT 188 IAC tells us that such people cannot have any breaks in their dependency on the EU citizen sponsor. And Colin, I feel like I've been talking for ages, so uh, why don't you tell us uh, what on earth that means? What, what are the implications of this case, do you think?
0: Yeah, this, this is a pretty disappointing tribunal decision, um, and, and unfortunately it could have sort of relatively long-lasting effects because it can affect um, whether somebody qualifies under the EU settlement scheme as well. Um, I, I'm, and I, It's disappointing, and it's probably... For what it's worth, I think it's probably wrong as well. Although there's, there's probably not enough time before before this sort of bites um, to, to for, for, for it to be overturned. But um, yeah, the tribunals basically concluded that dependency has to be continuous. That that word doesn't feature in the directive though. They've read it into the directive in effect, um, and over and over again, the tribunal adopt a very restrictive view of EU law. They're getting it wrong consistently, and it feels like this may well be yet another example of that. Um, It it really messes with people's lives when they do get it wrong in this way. Um, And, you know, the Tribunal ought to have asked itself some fairly deep and searching questions about its approach to to EU law. But, you know, it's hard to get too upset about it these days because EU law is is not long for this world, frankly, in, in, in the UK.
1: Despite EU law not being long for this world, there is another EU law case that we want to discuss very quickly. This time, the, the context is the rather different one of carriers' liability. And in case C754-18 Ryanair, the infamous airline, was fighting a fine for having someone on a flight who didn't have the right travel documents. And they won that case at the Court of Justice of the European Union. But on what grounds, Colin?
0: Well, it's an interesting one, this one. I, well, I'm personally interested in this one because um, I fought and lost a, a case that was later reported as a court of appeal case. I, I lost it at the county court stage and lost on this argument. And it's nice to see the argument turns out to be right all along. Um, but um, it, it's about the the difference in the wording in the directive about um, those who've got a residence card and a permanent residence card and on the face of it, the directive seems to suggest that if you've got a residence card, you don't need a visa. If you've got a permanent residence card, there is no explicit exemption. And the court says, well, of course, you know, if if, if you've upgraded from residence to permanent residence, then of course you shouldn't lose things. And therefore, you also don't need a visa if you've got a permanent residence card.
1: A, a, a visa to A visa to travel from the EU country you're living in to another EU country, is it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Sorry. So it's entering another member state. So say, for example, you're a third country national from outside the EU. Um, you live in, in an EU country. You move to another EU country. It can be quite difficult um, to, in practical terms to, to get in without a proper visa because you get asked to prove your status and so on. Um, carriers and their various different contractors won't necessarily accept the documents that you've got. And this doesn't come up for lawyers very often. It's more a sort of practical travel problem for individuals. Um, but this is in my view quite important for free movement so um so no it's a good it's a it's it's good to see a, a positive decision like this
1: yeah absolutely and a common sense one uh, at that just to round off a quick note on the immigration health surcharge it is in line to be abolished for nhs and social care workers at some point we don't know exactly when uh, the announcement was made i think in late may and people are complaining that they're still having to pay it in the meantime if they're an nhs doctor or whatever renewing their uh, visa or a social care worker but the prime minister has announced that people will be refunded down the line so clients who are working in an nhs NHS or social care role may be in line for some money back from the home office whenever this partial abolition of the health surcharge is implemented and it's clear which uh, categories of people it applies to retrospectively so uh, basically remind your clients to claim some money back if they're eligible
0: Right. Thank you. Well, I think that's it from us two for this month. So we'll be back in a month's time with the next one. Um, just to finish off, um, uh, just to reiterate something I said in the blog post about race and racism and the immigration system. Um, we do welcome contributions from other writers, particularly on that issue or other issues for that matter. Um, and particularly from, um, lawyers and others with a, black and ethnic minority backgrounds were sort of interested to try and have a a debate on the website about some of these issues and see if we can um, highlight issues in the system today okay goodbye